they've got it because they yeah. they believed in it and they developed it from within it wasn't just right. me that threw a process at them it was like we want to work this way and i said here's some you know guardrails that will help you steer in the right direction but where you want to drive within that road is really up to you and so was it a perfect one-to-one -one process of what it looked like no but the team was super visual so yeah if it meant that i had to print off these pretty pictures on the board and update them a bunch of times so that people understood like where pro or where we were in the process and you could visually see that progress and that was our info radiator well that's what we did because they'd actually engage with it if i put a postcard up there with a scribbled on you know sharpie marker name of the skin no one felt invested with it so mm -hmm. they didn't use it something as simple as printing off a picture made mm -hmm. people want to use a process like didn't even yeah. occur to me until it was in the moment and i'm like oh my god i totally missed like who some of these people are at their core and that right. was huge like that to me i think that's when the corner really turned for me personally of like i get it Welcome to Building Better Games, where we dive into what matters most in game development, leaders, and culture. Your hosts are Aaron Smith and Benjamin Karsich. Aaron and Ben are two veteran game industry leaders who have served a global audience of gamers and want to change how games are made. Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Better Games podcast. It should be a fun one today. We've got our good friend and ex-compatriot, David Klaus here, and we're excited to talk to him because he is an expert in game content development, and we were always kind of a little enamored. Um, ben also, uh, having worked in the space extensively himself, with Dave's ability to really go in, empathetically build relationships with teams as a leader, and really get them to deliver a lot of amazing stuff. And so we're going to dig into that and understand a little bit more about how the hell he found the magic to make all that happen. So thanks for joining us today, sir. Yeah, it's good to see you guys again. I missed I missed chatting with you. Yeah. Do, do you want to do a quick like bio intro of who you are? Just take like 30 seconds, a minute, whatever. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, my bio is I have been in games for my whole life as far as interest goes, but I lived in a small town. So uh, when I first got my foray into gaming, it was more of a throw a, a dart and hope it hits the moon type situation uh never expected the callback joined it scared out of my mind moving across the country from a small town to to the west coast and uh kind of learned everything on the job um i had been leading teams before that but it was all in manufacturing so it wasn't anything i had done before but it was it was fascinating and i i just kind of fell into agility and the whole a process of creating value at a place and so i learned on the fly and i really kind of just fell in love with it now i still do it today i'm an agile coach now so nice this this might sound like a an obvious a question with an obvious slant to it because obviously manufacturing <laughs> is a hell of a lot different than game development i'm curious if there's anything there that struck you as you made that transition that people might not expect 
when you say that struck me, like the the comparisons between the two that were similar yeah. or things that were different than I expect or both? Yeah, things that were different, like a changes for you. I think the the biggest difference is just the difference between defined like a very defined skill set of work or a very defined set of work that you have to do for the manufacturing. It's all on the table for you. You do this thing. It's for me, it was making business cards. It's this size. It has ink on it. It's very crystal clear as to what you're doing. Um, But when I joined the games industry, it was so nebulous. Uh, You know, when I asked what we made or what this team did it was like we did fun well i how do what is quantification of fun like what does that mean and so is how do you how do you actually know both when to start and when to finish was so interesting to to figure out on the fly for myself um luckily i was surrounded by some really good people as we we started to do that but i think that was the biggest like kind of slap in the face um i assumed that a a studio whose game I was playing probably already had a really well-defined process that I would just be stepping into. Um, <laughs> and it, I mean, it wasn't the case. It wasn't a mess, but it wasn't well-defined. And so mm-hmm. that was really shocking for me uh, from from manufacturing to, to the creative industry. Just, just so everyone's aware, um, David worked with us at League of Legends and he was actually on the skins team. Um, for several years, um, was basically the um, the key development manager there, leading that team. And I think I think you were the first person who helped that team produce a hundred skins in a year, if I recall. Yeah, which was the goal. Yeah, we did some really cool stuff. Uh, you know, the the number was a cool number to hit, but I think where we started to push things outside of expectations as far as like actually being able to make some of these really weird ideas into a reality uh, was the stuff that I'm more proud of those moments of like, nah, there's no way we can do this. And then we get to the end and suddenly everyone's in a, in a small sound room crying over the realization that a skin like DJ Sona has come into life type thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were actually there through, most of the le- early legendaries. Yes. Or most of the early legendary skins. I actually joined basically right before Pulsefire Ezreal. Yeah. Um, and so we were in the midst of that as I joined the team. And then I left shortly after the first like full project skin release all at once when it was Project Ash and all those together. So everything yeah. in between I got to got to be a part of, which is a lot actually looking back on it you kind of forget but yeah it was really cool yeah yeah and and for those that not familiar with league of legends when we're talking about things like legendary skins we're talking about basically over time tiers of skins started to develop where there was clear quality differences between the different tiers and so now the skins team i mean actually it's been a couple years since i've been connected to to that whole world but um, there was uh, actually a deliberateness around what kind of a skin are we making. Mm-hmm. And some of those higher level skins like legendaries had a lot of bells and whistles associated with them that the others did not. So they were actually far more technically and visually complex. I think you also touched on something that was always a really interesting hot topic. And I don't know, Ben, if you experienced this too um, with your teams, the the idea of scope and quality were regularly confused uh by the team 
big arguments around whether or not this thing needed every single possible bell and whistle we could put on it to be of quality um, Mm -hmm. versus this is just higher scope. And so it was like we couldn't just Mm -hmm. only release these skins that took us 24 weeks of development time. That couldn't be the only thing we did. We had to do things that were also accessible at a different price point, but also didn't cost us all that uh, like person power to develop. And so constantly having the discussions with individuals where they're like, we want to do a completely full overhaul of all of the visual effects on this. Like, but that's not the price point we're targeting. And so the scope mm. was different. And the question was like, well, I, didn't, I don't know why we'd make a low quality skin. It's like, well, we're going to do really high quality within the scope that we've set. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was always an interesting and difficult discussion to have because you're asking someone to not do as much as they could. Right. Which is a weird world to be in. There, I think I've mentioned this before, but there was a thing um, when I went back to Champion the second time. And uh, the, the quality creep was pretty strong because where you were actually dealing with different tiers, there were like all the different tiers. You kind of had your basics and up to the legendaries, um, champions were champions. Like everyone should stand on its own, should be a niche product that, uh, or sorry, should have its own niche, should be something that somebody's going to love. And hopefully a lot of people would love, but we're creating it for, you know, diversity in all sorts of ways from a gameplay perspective, from the humans that would engage with it perspective and all these things. And, um, one of the, the things that I remember coming in and talking about is, well, we got to think about who the champion is and, um, we have to set a line that's good enough. And people got very upset when I said good enough. Um, and I had to re say it as awesome enough. I was like, okay, how about awesome enough? Can I say awesome enough? And they accepted that. Um, but that's kind of some of what you're talking about, where there has to be a point before all of the work we could possibly do on this that we stop, because that amount of work is infinite. Um, and trying to find that, especially in your case, in different quality tiers. Um, one of the other things that was probably very true, or at least I observed from the outside looking at the skins team, was what was a basic originally... Um, and what was the next tier up? Epic. There's there was epic. there was basic epic legendary, legendary. ultimate uh yeah. when I was there. And then I think Mythic was introduced later after shortly after I left. Yeah. Um, yeah. What used to be good enough for basic um was no longer. We we had almost had like a a Kano model creep. Like what what this had been such a such an exciting feature when it first came out, you know, like, oh, they get a their own custom recall animation or whatever that's different from the the main champions or something like that. And suddenly that was in, well, you know, started off it was only legendaries and then it was in all the epics. And then maybe it even got to the point where it was in all the basics. And there was this, so quality was creeping in multiple ways. Um, and anyway, yeah, it was, that was something I remember. Uh, well, one thing I want to dig into um, that I'm interested to hear about is because it's such a common challenge in games, and I think it, in most creative fields, but in technology, I think we deal with it in games the most, which is there's sort of two threads. There's the, hey, I'm really passionate as an artist or a designer about making a good product that someone can use and be happy with. And then I think the other one is mm-hmm. I want to demonstrate that I'm actually really good at my craft and push my limits mm-hmm. and evolve myself as a craftsperson to be better at 
art or better at design or whatever my thing is, that I think often results in a strong emotional attachment to the work. And in, in, and to your point, Dave, that you touched on earlier, an investment in, hey, I want this thing to be as high quality as it can be. So when those emotions are running hot and like everyone's got a strong opinion and people are debating and everyone just wants to keep sort of escalating, escalating, escalating. And again, there's human feelings involved. How do you sort of juggle that dynamic on the team with like the need to ship something or the need to cut work off at some point or, you know, just helping people understand what effectively working together, like how do you manage all the emotional soup that gets in there? Because I, I I observed that you did that well, Mm -hmm. but that I know it was a challenge for you, but I think that that's one of those things about being a content leader that people don't often think about. So tell me about that. Yeah, I think the the first thing that comes to my mind is like you actually have to care about the people on your team. You can't fake that. Like you can't mm-hmm. fake that you care about somebody by going in and going, I hear what you're saying and being like trying to be really gentle and, and in some ways patronizing. Um you have to actually care about them first and foremost. And I and I did. I cared about the people on our on our team very deeply. Um sometimes it's it depending on the person, it might just be a a value proposition. If you spend another eight weeks tinkering with this, that's a whole nother skin you could have made that touches a mm-hmm. whole different part of our player base. Like giving them that picture of like, this isn't just in a bubble. Our decisions impact everything else that's going on around us and like what you could potentially invest in. Um, some of it is giving people the the opportunity to have those spaces to explore. So one thing we did was we didn't do like a legendary team of people. We rotated individuals in and out. One day you were working on these really high tier skins. The next day you're working on our standard skins. Um, you know, give them that space to have that playground to push the envelope and move on. But also ask if people want to do that. There's some people who are like, I really actually like churning out more content for people that's really good but I don't want to sit and noodle on something for 12 weeks. I I lose motivation. I get in my own head. I start to worry if it's good enough. So, you know, align what you can with people's interests, give them Mm -hmm. space to be creative and give them space to play. But for the most part, like care, listen, like go listen to what they have to say. I I will very clearly remember a couple discussions. There was uh, an individual was like, we need to put this one animation on the skin like it has to be on here there's so much win um and it was in the concept and what it was it was a cape and i was like well how long is that going to take well turns out capes take a really long time mm-hmm. because cape, they have to be on literally everything and so we talked we had to talk about like well why is it there what is the fantasy of that having the person explain why they felt it was so important um and it was on a it was on a, a wrestler skin and so we had to sit down and be like, well, guess what? At the Actually, wrestlers don't wrestle with a cape on. They come out and they toss it off as they enter the ring. And so you had to find this middle ground at times that said, like, you can still fulfill this passion and this, like, fantasy for this character that you're like, is so important. But how can we do it in a way that is actually also doable in a reasonable amount of time? Um, and some of that, too, is also having good leads 
finding the people on your team who are who are good individuals that are going to lead from within the team. I'm not an artist. I can't draw anything. I just I've never been able to. Um, so I had to rely on individuals that worked on my team to, you know, help me understand this bridge the gap for me. I can help you bridge the gap to what it means to be in a pipeline without showing you an Excel spreadsheet and being like, all right, well, mm. we have four boxes before we have to finish this. Um, but I need you to help me get the rest of the way too, because I'm not going to pretend to know everything about it. And what do you, what do you look for in a good lead when you were like eyeballing someone, you might, that guy or that gal might be able to step up and really help push forward the right behavior or the right culture or whatever. What, what are those things that you look for? Some of it's just organic. Like who do people look to when you're in a room and we're all looking at something and there's feedback on it and somebody says, Hey, I think the VFX need to be this way. Who does everyone look at that's a VFX artist, even if they're not named lead? Well, that person clearly is a trusted leader on that team. Like, let the team kind of organically define it just by who they look to and talk to. Um, some of it is, again, are they interested in it? I'm not going to pull someone aside and be like, I think you should lead this team. Um, and in some ways, it was interesting because that wasn't really my call to make. I didn't promote people on my team. It was art leadership who was promoting them by title but we talked about who was the person who could kind of shepherd these things to completion and so we had uh team roles separate from titles in these scenarios and sometimes it could be someone who had never led before leading one of the skins because it was their passion i led a skin mm -hmm. i led dunk master darius because i was into sports and basketball and i had a few individuals who were like you're going to have to help me with the sports ball thing. I don't get it. Like intentionally trying <laughs> to be like, we don't like sports, Klaus. Um, You're telling me the ball goes into that basket over there. <laughs> yeah. And so that was a really interesting experience where I got to also impose deadlines on myself and be mad at myself for having those deadlines of, you know, <laughs> here's when we have to do these things and have this inner struggle of, but I could push it right. Like, no, what would I coach somebody to do in that situation? That actually grew mm. me a lot. Um, mm. In that scenario, we all actually had to throw away a whole set of work that I was really excited about because it just was not good. And so seeing that too was another thing. So some of it just organically um, emerges, but I'd say, you know, who are the people that are coming to you when something feels off? Those are those mm. are what I look for in a lead. I don't want someone who's going to tell me yes every time I ask if if we are on track or if we're going to be able to do this. Who's the who's the artist that's going to say, "Yeah, we could do it," or "You're going to lose this." Not always. We need more time. Not always. We don't need more time. But who's the person mm. that gives me a real picture of what's happening? Mm -hmm. um, and those are the people I'm going to go to all the time. And I had some really good ones on my team. Um, mm -hmm. like some really good ones on my team. Nice. That was a really long description and it probably didn't no. answer your question, but no, it, it <laughs> absolutely did. did. It, it absolutely did, yeah. answered my question. There, there's so many angles my brain takes on this. I think I, I view myself as mostly an outsider when it comes to this work. I did this work, um, at the team of teams level, but I didn't do a lot of content development. And I think if I'm honest with myself, gravitating towards the engineering org was always kind of something that felt more 
my speed, mm-hmm. something that I could understand. And and I and I often wonder if there was a bit of a cop out there because there was so much flavor, I think, of a different different kind of flavor, but also much more intense flavor. Not least of all, by the way, because I don't know if folks are aware of this, but the amount of different skill sets that you have involved in a in the average content development pipeline is like extremely higher than what you have on the average sort of normal, even cross-functional engineering team, engineering focused team. So like you might have uh, an engineer a, or a couple engineers, a QA, like a UX designer, like your classic kind of web development group, um, and maybe a visual designer, but like, you know, you can have 10, 12, 15 different disciplines involved in the making of a champion or making of a skin. And I think that there was a certain human complexity there where I was like, uh, you know, I, I like more mathematical problems. I, I don't know. I'm again, I, I, I find myself gravitating towards that and wanting to ask you both. Um, you know, you talked Dave about caring about the team. Like that's one of those things I hear about and I'm immediately like, yes, that matters. But there's another cynical part of my brain. It's like, okay, well, what doors did that actually open for you? Like practically, what does that actually do? Of course, that seems like a good thing to do to be a nice person and care about your team and all these <laughs> things. But you, you actually delivered better results because of the relationships you developed. So what's that translation layer there? Like how does the, how do those relationships result in better products? I think it's twofold. Um, I think one is the team trusts you and they know you've got their back. And that's what I mean by caring. Like they feel more comfortable pushing their boundaries, both from a creative standpoint, but from the the non-creative standpoint, like, yes, we're willing to to go with you on this. Um, you know, I, not to get too deep into a bunch of theories, but I've always thought of my relationship with teams and individuals as kind of an emotional bank. Like, you can go into the positive by making deposits, things like showing up when you say you're going to show up for things, uh, you know, giving the team, saying what you're going to, doing what you're gonna, you say you're going to do, um, admitting when you're wrong. All these things build that trust over time and, and you build that and you're then they're more willing to make a deposit or make a withdrawal uh, when you're like, we have to get this done by this date. We have to cut scope for that. It wasn't in our original plan. So they know I'm not just doing it to check a box for me. They know I'm doing it because I know I truly want what's best for the Mm. team. And so in some of that too, though, it it leaves room for you to admit you were surprised by that creativity. And I think that that that's something that's unique to these creative teams. Like I was surprised when an idea actually worked more than once. And I would tell the team flat out, I'm like, I think this is going to be a disaster, but you have proven me wrong before. I'm willing to fight for your, your room to try this because mm-hmm. it might work. Sometimes it did. Sometimes it didn't. Um, and so that passion of like, I care about them feeling like they have the safety to create kind of lets them Mm. stay clear of all the essentially the bullshit involved with like you have to meet this deadline you have to cut this you have to do that because they know i'm not doing it just to check a box they know if we're doing it's like we don't feel like the investment is going to be there on this and we want to move on to something else so i think it's just that level of trust 
that goes a yeah. really, really long way. People do better work and they don't worry then. Like, you know, the classic scrum master um, idiom of like, be the shield for the team to get rid of them, get all that stuff away from them. Um, I don't think that means like hide them from it. Ex mm -hmm. Like expose them to it. Hey, this is what's going on, but mm -hmm. I got you. Mm -hmm. Or this is what's going on. And we can't fight against this one because it's not worth it um, mm -hmm. in this scenario. It allows them to know when they can push those boundaries and when it's like, let's really focus on the most important thing for this is to have something good versus the most important thing in this situation is to try something new and where they know that is. Their, mm -hmm. their parameters are clearly set in those scenarios and they trust that you're doing it for the right reason. You know, uh, that, that piece, that piece, uh, sorry, Aaron, I just thought so strongly of the trust in that, like the, the, to be able to tell a team for them to trust that you have their back and to say, Hey, we're getting, you know, most cynically orders from on high. Um, and you know what, it's not worth us fighting at this time. And for them to say, you know what, he's fought for us before. Um, and if he's saying it's probably not a good trade-off this time, we can go along with that. We can, we, and you had that with this, with the skin team. I remember that they, they trusted you to push and they also trusted you when you came back to them and said, I don't think this is a good fight. Um, that's meaningful. Sorry, Aaron, yeah, you can go ahead. No, don't be sorry at all. There's a follow-up there, which I think is really interesting too. And I think speaks to another thing I observed about you that was less common or relatively unique, which is this idea of not allowing yourself to be a simple pass through as a leader or as mm -hmm. a producer type. So like the reality, you said, I don't want to give the team this idea that I'm like, oh, it's, we have to cut scope or, oh, we have to ship this thing. And I'm not just checking some obligatory box as a producer. But the reality is a lot of times that pressure you get from your chain of command, from your uh, leaders, from external parties can often come in that form. Like even in so far as some people are like, well, you are a producer. Your job is to make spreadsheets and your job is to check boxes and your job is to ship this very specific numbers of th a number of things in this very specific time frame. So like how, because no doubt some of the trust you built with the team was because you managed that well and they saw you managing that well and they knew that you weren't just going <laughs> to you know, let the cannonball hit them in the chest. Yeah. So like, how did, how did you do that though? Because that's really hard. I feel like it's, it's so much easier to say for you to say yes all the time and then you lose trust with the team. So how, how'd you find yourself juggling that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I would say I didn't always do it great. Um, I always did it. Okay. Um, <laughs> one of the biggest points I remember in, in my career was, I basically uh, sacrificed a, a promotion chance to fight for what I felt was right for the team. And that that hurt uh, me because the leader I had at the time, there was a lot of turmoil for my leadership um, and someone didn't understand. They were basically like, for me to understand if you're doing a good job, I need this type of metric. And I didn't have that for the team. 
And I wasn't going to impose the entire team to do the essentially story points uh, estimate on all the work that they were doing. So like that doesn't work on this team. It's going to upset how we do things. We have predictable measures. They're just not ones that fit the mold of what makes sense for that. Um, going back, would I have made the same decision, like knowing that I was going to rub so many people the wrong way with that? I don't know. Maybe um, I could think of way it would have gone better. I could think of things to do better. Um, but yeah, really the, the, the struggle for that is expose them to like what you're being asked to do and ask them where they can meet you in the middle on this. Like I, we're working with adults. That was the way I always wanted to, to like, when be like, Oh, do you tell your team that? I'm like, yeah, they're adults. Like <laughs> if, if they, if I tell them, here's what I'm struggling with, they can help me understand where I can push. Like someone might have an idea. Well, actually, I think we can give you a good predictive estimate here. Or actually, yeah, I get why this is so important for the company. Like we get so worried that exposing ourselves as as vulnerable people, like people that have stress as leaders, that well, suddenly well, they're not a fearless leader. They, you know, you saw it get to you. Um, no, I wanted them to know, like, hey, man, I'm dealing with some stuff right now, so I'm going to need some mm -hmm. help. Uh, from you on how we could do this my leader has asked me how do they know that we're delivering at the pace we should like i feel like we're delivering well but they don't they, they haven't been in this world before so they don't understand this metric mm. this discussion we have and one of them was a very clear example you've been on this team for two and a half years it still takes you you know 12 weeks to make a legendary why hasn't your team gotten faster like, mm -hmm. interesting question. To Aaron's point from earlier, we got to the this quality creep situation. If you look at something two and a half years prior to what we're at now, we're doing a hell of a lot more in 12 weeks than yeah. we were two and a half years ago. But yeah. on paper, it's hard to translate. This is a higher scope. Like, this is cooler. All right. you see in the metrics is a one-dimensional picture of number of weeks taken like here's the time it takes you to do this skin that's from there and so if i was going to do it again i would spend a lot more time figuring out how to translate that message better externally but i focused mm -hmm. more on what the team needed to be able to do to create that value um mm -hmm. and i went off on I, a big tangent there but uh, no no, no that's, it's fine, man. I wanna, that's what that's what this is for um there's there's something um when you set that example as well, and, and one of the things Aaron and I talk a lot about, what incentives are you creating as a leader? Because that's gonna drive your culture. And one of the things that you just expressed is as a leader um, in an environment where it was more common perhaps to have the, like the fearless, confident leader who tended to, you always wanted to have an answer. Like that was, um, I mean, it's very common, right? It's very common across, uh, I mean, the entire Western corporate world. Um, by going in, and saying, this is what I'm struggling with to the team. And I would love some help if you if you see a good way to help me, right? Um, and I don't think you ever did that in such a way where you were like, you need to get me out of my mess. But yeah. it was it was always a like, hey, this is what I'm struggling with. The interesting thing that you also give them permission to do is bring you their concerns. Because you've shown that a leader in this organization is allowed to be vulnerable. Yeah. Well, I think you've also shown that one of your expectations of someone who's on the team 
is that they will lean on the team, that they will support the team, that mm-hmm. there's that there's an us is bigger than me or you kind of dynamic there. And I do remember in some of the few times I saw you, uh, I'm going to use strong language, but get mad or like have to maybe lean a little bit more into like a disciplinary stance was when you saw somebody who was breaching that cultural mm-hmm. boundary, which is like, hey, this isn't about you. This isn't your opportunity to be whoever. Like there's a there's a, a, a functioning unit here where we all need to like put our hand in the proverbial circle. And, and I remember going into those big meetings because you had big standups, which were, you know, at the time, a little unorthodox, right? Where you had like 30 plus people in there and they were very smooth. And I remember they flowed very well. And, and there was this like communion. It felt that's the word that just came up in my mind. Like everyone, like everyone knew why everyone was there. There was a bond and it was like, it, it's not about you. It's about we're all here and we're all on a mission together that was i always remember being very impressed by that when they they loved the mission too i just yeah. remember that people came off the skin steam i mean obviously not everybody loved it all the time but generally people would refer back to it being a positive experience and um that was actually a shift when you and i joined riot there was an impression that yeah like you kind of have the, the sort of super people and they're over there making the champions or whatever and skins team like they're pretty good or whatever and I remember um, you completely flipped that dynamic. Um, well, not flipped it, but you certainly made it so that, like, no, people understood the value that the Skins team provided and were happy to be providing that value to players, you know, week after week after week. Um, and you had you had constraints as well that, like, I didn't have to deal with on the champion team as much. I did more earlier, but later on, you know, that idea, you had to be so much more aware of opportunity cost. Um, yeah, I... I loved work. So I loved working on the team, um, partially because all that engineering stuff that you talked about, Aaron, earlier, um, <laughs> I started with Aaron on an, a more engineering focused team. And I had no idea what the hell anyone was talking about 90% of the time. <laughs> I dropped out of uh, computer programming. I dropped out of Java uh, in in college because I couldn't stop playing Diablo 2 at the time. Um, so we had our laptops in class. And instead of paying attention, I was playing Diablo because I'm a moron. And I didn't realize that I was paying money to be in class. And so, <laughs> but I still, I still loved the side, like that tech aspect But in some ways, it really benefited me that I didn't know all this engineering background because I just connected with the passion around like, we want to make something cool. And, and, um, you know, I don't know how many names we want to pull out because of all the people we worked with. But I remember in my interview, um, someone asked me a question, a senior leader there said, what do you want to do here? And the only answer I had was, I want to make cool video games for people that love them. And he was like, mm-hmm. he was already done with the interview after that. He's like, all right, well, you've passed my interview because normally <laughs> what people say is, I want to do this job and this very specific thing. And, you know, I want to deliver this thing. Um, but at my core, like I was kind of luckily naive uh, in that. So being on this team I just valued being a part of the team. And so if you thought back to when we got to events and things like that, it was never like one person from the team. You'd hear one person be like, skins team. And then echoes of it come up from all over in the crowd from the people who were on the skins team, still with their buddies, with other groups. But 
you know, they felt that identity um, yeah. with that team. And we had to build that because like you said, Aaron, we grew from 14 individuals to 42 in a mm-hmm. one scrum team. Uh, yeah, stuff was unorthodox. You could say it was a mess at times. It was chaotic, but we made it work. Uh, it was it was a lot of work. It was a lot of fun. And I was really happy to see the team succeed together. Um, you know, we would call out individuals who made some really cool stuff, but no one ever pulled one person from the team and said, like, you are the best. Thank you for doing this. It was great job team that worked on this skin group that did this thing. Um, you form that culture of like, we win together. And mm-hmm. I know that's really buzzwordy and, and I hate buzzwords. Like it just, some of the buzzwords just annoy me. Um, but the team truly did like we won together and it wasn't always easy. Like we, that doesn't mean we didn't, we always got along. We argued about stuff. There are a few individuals on the team that I had heated conversations with about why are we doing this? We need this. Um, and you know, they were right. I was right. Depending on the day. But we always walked out, you know, knowing we were driving for that same thing, which was we wanted to provide cool stuff to the people that loved what we did. Um, That made it all easier to have those conflicts, those disagreements. We were aligned at that base level. We're doing this for the people that play it. We're not doing this for Klaus. We're not doing this for, you know, Aaron. We're not doing this for me as an artist. We're doing it because it's cool for the players. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to touch on, I remember some of our very early conversations when you were on skins and I was on champion and we were both in our own ways, um, sort of seeking wisdom about how to do our job because I was out of the military, you were out of manufacturing and we were both like, well, a lot of these lessons just don't, don't apply very directly. And so we were reading books and trying to attend groups and all this stuff. And I remember at the time being frustrated and I've half jokingly, half seriously mentioned to you before, like we should write a book because it just, it's not there. It's not out there. Like people don't understand what this looks like. Um, I, since this podcast is a place for uh, leaders in games to actually learn stuff that maybe isn't as uh, accessible without sort of uh, very specific mentors of which there's not that many actually in the industry. Um, I kind of want to know what, what would you tell someone who was going into as a producer, a content related role? Like, Hey, you're going to be making content for the video games. So you're going to be working with artists and designers and maybe writers. And, uh, you'll probably have some engineers on your team. And, um, you know, the, with the full gamut that Aaron was talking about earlier, like, you know, all, all 12 plus disciplines that are involved, um, what, what advice would you give them if they came from an engineering background or a manufacturing background or whatever other background? I think the first thing I'd tell them is the most valuable process for your team is the one that's, that they'll actually use, like full stop. Um, it yes. doesn't matter. Love that. Like building the most perfect pipeline that exists in the history of gaming is great until no one wants to do it because it's a pain in the ass. Like Mm -hmm. if your team engages with it, it is going to provide you the most value. 
And that was really hard for me because in, in some ways I'm a math guy too. I could see where our bottlenecks were. I could see like, I, sometimes I felt like I was seeing the matrix up at our large board where we had everything up there. I'm like, I know what we need to change. We need to do this. We need to do this. And then I tell the team, they'd be like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what that means. And so I had to take a back seat to like, here is what they're actually willing to engage with from a process standpoint. And then start pushing ideas and thoughts mm-hmm. uh, into these conversations. Things like, well, what if we got uh, a visual effects artist in here during our concept phase so that they could give feedback on the visual effects on that they could do for this before they, the concept's complete? What if we, instead of, you know, doing these things in an order, overlapped more so that we can give each other feedback in the moment before it's complete and not worry about, well, I won't know how to give feedback to that person because it's not a completed product. Start injecting just the thoughts of what it takes to get, make a good pipeline and process into here and worry less about what it looks like from an X's and O's standpoint. Like mm-hmm. you guys saw our board. It was, it was cool. But no one understood what it was unless we walked them through it. And the most happy I ever was, was when someone didn't go to me to ask how it worked from our team. Someone came over and said, can you tell me this? And two artists from the team walked them through how our board works with a sense of pride. And I was like, time to walk away. Like, they've got it because they, they believed in it and they developed it from within. It wasn't just me right. that threw a process at him. It was like, we want to work this way. And I said, here's some, <clears throat> you know, guardrails that will help you steer in the right direction. But where you want to drive within that road is really up to you. And so was it a perfect one-to-one process of what it looked like? No, but the team was super visual. So yeah, if it meant that I had to print off these pretty pictures on the board and update them a bunch of times so that people understood like where pro or where we were in the process and you could visually see that progress and that was our info radiator well that's what we did because they'd actually engage with it if i put a postcard up there with a scribbled on you know sharpie marker name of the skin no one felt invested with it so mm-hmm. they didn't use it something as simple as printing off a picture made mm-hmm. people want to use a process like didn't even yeah. occur to me until it was in the moment. And I'm like, oh my God, I totally missed like who some of these people are at their core. And that right. was huge. Like that to me, I think that's when the corner really turned for me personally of like, I get it. Like now mm-hmm. I don't just care about these people, but I also get them um, mm-hmm. in that moment. And so, yeah, the, don't worry about building the perfect process. Worry about building a process your team will use and then iterate on it, even if it's starting at waterfall. Like, start with what you can and build on it. You I, know, I had I'm, a... Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, just real quick. I'm going to be bold for a second here and say that that story you just told um, is exemplar, I think, in so many ways. Because... That really is. I mean, as you've said, your background was manufacturing. Your background was very sort of lean systems design and thinking, building 
robust and very detailed processes. And you ran into that wall proverbially and, and you pivoted the entire way you saw the world from a project management and mathematical world to a human one. And, and that, that's what I just took away from what you said. And, and I think what's so, what strikes me about that is we're, we're always talking about holistic leadership as being something beyond just what we call management. You know, like, like I, I can find a clever way to manage everything and everybody, right? I can make a spreadsheet for that. I can make a meeting for that. I can make a process for that. I can wrap whatever you give me in a process. And instead you said, what if I wrapped a process inside of a group? And I think that that's, you, you clearly prioritize them and who mm-hmm. they were as human beings and how they worked and how they saw value. And you met them where they were. And, um, and, and, and no doubt there's, uh, you know, producers out there or leaders out there who would just be like, well, you know, this is why I prefer a system where we can just tell people what to do. But like, I just dare say that that's just not going to generate nearly What's- as the, the nearly as great of products is is what we're talking about here. And so I, I know that that was a little bit of a tirade. I'm sorry, but like to, it just, I felt moved almost by the way you just described that because to me, I'm just hearing that. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about leaders broadening their horizons beyond just being managers. It's like, that's culture. You built a culture, you invested in a culture, you saw a people for their culture. That's, that's amazing. The... The thing I, I I loved what you said right at the beginning that effectively you have to pick the process that they'll accept. Um, like you, it doesn't, and and I had it from the opposite side. Like Aaron, I was that guy. You know, I was a captain in the military when I left. Odds are, if I walked into a room in my previous job before I was working on League of Legends, um. If I was the highest ranking person, and that was often the case actually when I became a captain, which is weird, it's fairly junior officer rank, but there's just not that many majors and lieutenant colonels walking around the average base. Um, Everybody in that room was supposed to stand up, right? And it's like, yep, because I'm a captain, I'm in charge, right? And if I'm walking in, I'm the highest ranking person, you all have to stand up. Um, I could, I would walk down a a street and people would stop, stand up, salute me. Um, If, if, they, if I outranked them and I outrank most people, you get, and it's weird. I always thought that was very strange, but you didn't, I didn't realize how much I got used to it. And the story you just told David, I had the opposite experience where I made that mistake. Um, when I first got to the champion team and I, you know, I'm a deep thinker and an intellectual guy and I'm studying and I'm trying to figure out how would we do this? And I didn't like how the teams were set up. Um, and their constraints, it just didn't seem like it was working out. And I, I figured out, at three o'clock in the morning, I like woke up and I wrote down all these ideas and someone was like, you know what? You should just try it. You should do this with the team. And it was this horrible four team mess thing that I created, but it was perfect on paper. And I, <laughs> you know, and I did all this work and I created a giant PowerPoint about like, this is how it's going to work. And this is who's going to be where, and here's where our leaders are going to be. And I've said this before, um, as a leader, you have to recognize that other people pay for your mistakes and like, take that seriously. It doesn't mean don't take risks, just recognize the consequence. And I think of that as like one of the key examples in my mind where maybe if my 
teams were made up of robots, my pro- process would have been great. But they <laughs> so were people. Ben's and like, what, I just uh, solved your process. Like I solved my <laughs> daily Wordle, actually, and you are all my letters. So if you can just go ahead and get into your uh, respective positions, exactly. Uh, exactly. I would really appreciate. That. And and I I was rolling this out, and I remember multiple people, um, came to me in good faith, actually, and I and I'm disappointed um, with myself when I look back at it. But you know, we all we all have to have those learning experiences, and they were like, hey, like. Some of them are even like, look, I'm willing to try this. I'll be honest, the way you set this up, it's really bad for my discipline, like for the character artists. Some of us are basically doing all the fun stuff and some of us get all the sucky work um, with the way you kind of organized and split this. And we don't have vision flowing through, right? You don't have enough people staying with the character as it's moving through the pipeline because it's actually moving between teams. And, you know, I look back now at what I was doing and I'm just like, oh my goodness, like it was so... It was so bad, but it was so perfect in my mind and it was so good on paper. And um, I ended up, and this is even worse, uh, I ended up like applying it on the team and for completely different reasons, they moved me to a different team soon after. I, I think maybe they were actually like, get him out of here. <laughs> and I just didn't know. But I think it was just that they they had some other places and they were like, hey, could you go help with this other thing with, with the map space? Um, and they, they ended up not using the process for very long and they switched away from it. And I'll be honest, I don't even think they ever really used it. I think it was a lot of like, okay, we'll follow your process on paper. And I always have this picture of like, if you saw a line of ants, like going into your house or something, if you just take like, uh, you're like, well, I'll stop those ants. And you just put a brick in their path and you're like, there, did it. And you just watch the ants like crawl over the brick and keep going right <laughs> on the path that they were already on. Like they, they don't care that you put a brick in the way, like they're ants, right? Like, and <laughs> what, what David, what you were describing is this, like you have to, if you want to get the most creativity out of people, and if you want them to trust you, you have to let them self-organize. And then you're the way you interact with them <laughs> and you can still be firm. I know there were times where you were firm and there were times when I was a more experienced content producer where I was also firm and felt better about it. Um, where I was like, no, Hey guys, I really need us to try this. Like, I really, I, I want you to trust me this time because I think this will be better. Um, but it was always then framed through the lens of like, what are you willing to do? And I want to make sure I'm not inhibiting your ability to do your job that you're not, I'm not inhibiting your ability to feel ownership of the work that you're doing. Um, because, I want that there collectively for you. I know it gives meaning to the work that you do. And if I take that away, you actually become that robot. And and you do start just trying to sit in the box that I built for you. And I lose the most valuable thing about you, which is your creativity and the potential for the things that I didn't understand, the things I didn't know. Um, I'm not saying I do that perfectly now, but that, yeah, I, I just spot on. I think there's a there's an angle to it too, which is, you know, kind of made my own grave in that one. I was happy to lay in the grave, um, but I made my own grave in that we built this culture of we wanted people to be invested and all that. And so if I would have just told them, no, we're going to follow this process, they would have thrown me off the team. They would have just mm-hmm. been like, nope, like we're not going to do that because you told us that's not how we're going to work. Like they would have held me accountable to what I said uh for that and some of that too is because i regularly held them accountable to things like there was an there was an individual moment where someone was like 
I just wasn't interested in fitting, finishing this piece that I had started on. So I handed it off to somebody else so I could start on something new because I just wasn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to finish it anymore. And I had to sit down with them and was like, look, no one here is able to just kind of start and just hand stuff off to other people without finishing it. Cause they don't want to, cause it's hard. Like follow through, finish it. Let us help you. How can we help you? How can you get help from the other team? But we're not just going to stop working on something the second it gets to a spot where you're like, eh, I don't really want to do it anymore um, <laughs> because it's hard. And, you know, that's a tough conversation to have when that is a, such a personal investment in their art. And if you feel like you're not bought into it, it kind of comes through in the way that you sell it to the team and talk about it to the team. Yeah, this is a concept. I kind of thought we could do this. Um, you know, they're just, you just don't feel the passion and people don't get excited. And usually it feels like it doesn't result in something good, but really that like building that accountability in and, and whatnot, they would have ousted me from the team if I would have put in a really strict process. Because um, of the culture you created. Because of the culture I created at the beginning. And I'll be honest, some of it was by accident in that, I was just so flabbergasted by the process they were using when I joined that I was like, I don't know what to do with this. Like it was, all right, well, let's focus on the good, which is all this like creativity and this cool stuff that's going on. And instead of the, all right, we're going to assign for the week, what everyone is going to do creativity. Like you will be creative in this space for a week and you will do this for a week. Um, we took a step back and said, like, what are we trying to accomplish with this piece of the skin? And like, how will we know when we get there? And mm, I love that. And, I love that. The value orientation there. And then what we did after that was I kind of reversed engineered it to a point to say, all right, we've observed, I've observed silently without bringing it up to anyone for the last six months that on average, it takes us about this long to feel like we've gotten to value. I'm going to expose that back to the team now and say, you know, it takes mm -hmm. us four weeks to do the animations on um, a legendary. And then I'm going to have somebody gut check me on the team who's an expert in that field. And if they disagree, let's figure out like where the data disconnects from the feelings on the team, because sometimes the data is wrong. Like, Yes, numbers are numbers and that you can say like the data is never wrong. But when it comes to did that get us a good result? Like maybe like we did it fast. We met our quality bar, but nobody was excited about it. Was mm -hmm. that successful? I mean, I don't right. know. We can make the most beautiful skin from an art standpoint that is like, ah, yes, as artists, we feel like this is representative of who we are as people. And then when we release it and if none of the players get it, was it valuable? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Like, they just don't understand, right? Like, the most valuable thing is something that people use or engage mm -hmm. with. Same with process. Same thing with the thing that comes out of our team. Um, and that was really hard for me. I had, I had imposter syndrome for a very long time when I joined the team because the people I was regularly interacting with, like, I went to school for my art craft for, like, 12 years, and I'm an expert, and I worked at these places, like the the business side of like the research and, and analysts and stuff on the team like i went to mit or i come from harvard business school you know i'm talking to you ben and and you're like i was a, a high ranking officer in the military and like low ranking low ranking <laughs> well to me it was high ranking and like 
your family was a whole bunch of people that had some really prestigious uh education and jobs and things like that and i'm like i went to a state school and got a psychology degree and then i manufactured business cards for a while and i'm like <laughs> why should anybody listen to me and so i had to come at it from an angle of like i'm here to lead but from a point of i'm just here to help like I, I led by helping you just do what you do best instead of trying to tell you what to do um, because I would have screwed it all up. Like I can't tell someone how to make better art. Um, and my, one of my proudest moments was at the very, very end of one of the teams I worked on before I moved on. I think you took it over, Ben, the, um, the reworks group. Um, oh, very briefly. Yeah. yeah. Um, then Lulu, I think was, yeah. One of the most strong opinion artists on the team actually took a piece of artistic advice that I gave him because he just trusted me as a person. And I was like, okay, cool. Like that is my most proud moment because I, there's no reason he should ever listen to me from an art standpoint. Like mm -hmm. I don't know art theory and color theory and like all these things that they're talking about. And I was simply was like, here is how I see it as somebody who's playing, like, will you do it? And so that's where, again, it comes back to that trust, right? Like, that culture was built in where anyone could give you the feedback and I had to live it. And I benefited from my ignorance early because I didn't have any grandiose visions of, I already know what to do. It was like, I have no idea what to do. I have to figure this out just as much as you guys have to figure out how to work in a process. You know, there's something else there. And I, and you like, I appreciate your humility. There was somewhere else that your credibility came from in that. Um, and it was that they knew you loved the game. Your team knew you loved the game. You played it a lot. You were one of the better players on that team, if I recall. Um, and you were constantly in touch with those skins. Season um, one rumble shout out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you like there was there was act, I, I remember that about you um, that, you know, yeah, you don't have art credibility in your background, but you had. Uh, for for like you had gamer cred, you know, oh, and especially massive, yeah. inside of that game, and I think a lot of people actually <laughs> respected that about you because your role and my role and Aaron's role, we were all on what would be traditionally considered the processor management side. Like this, you know, if there was a product owner and a scrum master, we were all the scrum masters and the teams and the organization and people viewed us as sort of project managers a lot of the time. Um, but you were deeply connected to the product. You were constantly deeply connected to the product. I remember your team responded to you like that were the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I cared about the game a lot. That's actually the whole reason I, I came about the job, right, is I played the game, figured pipe dream, that dart to the moon, you know, what's mm -hmm. the worst that could happen if I put in a resume? I applied for a hiring recruiting coordinator position or something like that, and they're like, hey, how would you like to be a producer in the video games industry? I don't even know what that means. Sure, let's do it. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I like, I, I loved that our team put such an investment. And this is where gaming has a huge advantage on a lot of the industry is you can be your own audience. It's also, it can be a detriment too. But like, if I work at a, a medical technology company, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to sit and use our app that we're developing or that thing like just for fun for like five hours a day on my day off. Whereas in the games industry and this gaming thing, like 
I was playing League of Legends every night for two to four hours a night. I'd get off work, and then while I'm playing, I'm texting the product owner on my team going, hey, this skin, you know, it doesn't read very well. We really need to think about this piece when we come into the next. <laughs> like, like, So, you know, I was working while playing, but it didn't feel like work. And and yeah, like that clout, it, it did benefit. And it's the old, like, I hate the saying, you know, eat your own dog food. Um, we just did it naturally. And that's where the games, games has a huge advantage on the mm. rest of the industries. Also, you have an endless supply of people willing to give you feedback. Because mm-hmm. people are very passionate about games. Like our our PBE players forums, will tell you. Yeah, like if something's bad, they're gonna tell you, wow, this is garbage. Like, okay, cool. Like sometimes you have to, to put on that thick skin of I'm gonna read all this feedback mm-hmm. and take it in. But keeping keeping connected to that was such a huge part of it as well. Like you were connect they were connected to the end product on my team. Um yeah. Yeah. I, I want to uh, pivot a little bit, yeah. um, and you actually just touched on it as we close up, um, and and the the topic is leadership partnerships. So for and I and I know we're referencing Riot a lot, uh, guys, and um, and and we often do, and part of that is because a lot of our experience comes from there. But you know, such a robust, large company with a bunch of different types of products being developed kind of gives us a deep basin of things to to dig into and explore. One of the things that's interesting that I realize is not necessarily a common model in the games industry even, is a model of having two producers work together on a development team um, with nominally different roles, one of them being more on the product management side and the other one being more on the execution side. Like this is, you know, some might call this a scrum master product owner model. It's more complicated than that. Um, But this is not a, a decision that every game company or every tech company makes. And there's actually a lot of debate in the game space about whether that model works at all or whether you should just have one producer on a team, that whether a producer should be able to do everything. All that aside from a second, one of, one of the things I always thought was really interesting about this model, the two producer model, was this idea of leadership partnerships. And I think, Dave, you had one of the most effective I've ever seen in my career. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that because I want to. I want to know, like, how did that happen? How did it come to that? What are the benefits that you had from having that sort of yin yang kind of dynamic with your co-producer? Um, tell tell us about that. Yeah, well, it started. Um, I joined the team with someone who was working as that only producer on the team, and and he was he was brilliant. I view him as one of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with as someone who just leads from a a back of the room perspective who sits and and you know helps everyone come to a great decision without having to force it in the room <clears throat> and so he taught me a lot about that piece to it but with him and then both his replacement that came in we never got hung up on what is yours and what is mine in the responsibilities like piece we knew what we were responsible for to our leaders but what we asked the question of is like if of this big circle of stuff you have to do to lead a team where are you good and where am i good and where do we want to play like where do we want to be working in and for me as this person joined they were more junior when they joined i had a bigger piece of that pie for a while 
but I helped them take on what they wanted to. And, and we played in that space and vice versa. When I was coming up short on something and I needed help, I could ask them to pick up for me a little bit in that area. And so it wasn't this clear, like half and half. It was, uh, if you're, if you're thinking about percentages of a whole, it was like 45, 45. And then the other 10% would flex based off of area of expertise. And so the, the classic example of that for me was, um, I had somebody tell me like, Hey, you know, it's not your job to speak about what your team can deliver as far as products go in our morning meetings when we had all the producers in the room and we were talking. Um, and you know, mostly it was product owners speaking in there. And then it got to my team and, and I would speak as this new person joined the team to work with me. And they were my best, like they were my best friend too outside of work. So it made it real easy to just have that like very blunt, honest relationship with them as the, as the PO on the team and me as the development manager. Um, I reflected that back to the person and said, Hey, I got this feedback that I shouldn't be the one presenting in here because that's your job. And they actually went to the person that gave me that feedback and said, we got this back off. Like this is our space. This is how we work together. And depending on how I get comfortable, we'll change it. And they did. Eventually, they became a very powerful voice in the room. But in the moment, their focus was not that. And so this leadership circle of, of responsibilities was something that we defined that every value, every team I've worked on that was good, that had a leadership pair, they sat down and talked about that. If I ever worked on a team where someone didn't want to have that conversation, we ended up not working well together because inevitably I felt like I was responsible for this. They felt they were responsible for this. If anything fell even close to the cracks, it got lost and it would it would be super frustrating for the team. The team doesn't want to have to pick up our slack because we don't have our working relationship together. And so in that scenario, it was just like, how do we be the most effective leaders for this team? Not what does our title say that we have to do? Those are things we can figure out. But what does this team need? Does this team need like a push on some of these things? Does this team need um, somebody to fight for them in these rooms? Like they want to try something. They want somebody to do that. Which one of us feels more comfortable in that space? Not whose role would that fall under from a title standpoint, but what leadership piece are we going to do that from? We tackled problems together. And it was, it was, do you, do you feel like that unlocked doors for your team and for you guys? Or do you feel like you were kind of just working around an existing leadership structure or are you like that partnership model worked great? Like, what are your thoughts on it as you look back on it? I view that with both those producers as the best leadership model I've ever been a part of. Um, I think it unlocked a lot of doors for our team. If I'm being completely honest, I think it partially closed doors for us in situations mm -hmm. where it's not translatable one-to-one -to, -one to another team. And so other leaders, managers, uh, they didn't get it all the time. They're like, well, why aren't you doing this as the development manager? Or why aren't you doing this as the product owner? It's like, well, because we sat down and talked about how we're going to work together. And it's more effective when we do it this way. But there were expectations from a structure standpoint mm. that conflicted with an expectation from a leadership standpoint on the team. 
um and hierarchy style stuff too like who is truly the leader on this team which one person and having to constantly fight that battle of like no we are truly leading it together mm-hmm. um you know we're constantly fighting the battle of like people don't understand what that means and i get yeah. that they don't understand what that means because they're not working in it yeah um but it, if our true goal is for the team to be successful who cares like mm-hmm. really who cares as long well, as the team can be successful i think yeah I, I again i'm biased so uh but that to me seems like another example of management thought process clashing with leadership like your your perspective and your part you and your partner's perspective was like what is the model that makes sense for us what is the model that makes sense for the team and what is the model that delivers the most value to our audience and someone else was like can they check these 10 boxes or which person tell me which person gets credit for all this i need to who's in charge here you know it's it's again i i'm being a little dismissive right it's more complicated than that but i i do you know again i want to encourage everyone who's hearing this to sort of like understand that leadership and management have these kinds of divisions right um, I think leadership is fundamentally really a value-focused endeavor, um, and and management can result in value. You need to manage complex systems, but I think oftentimes <laughs> the opposite result can happen. As you you know, you're trying to force a square peg into a circle hole. You know, so just we just all I think need to. There's some a lot of wisdom I think in what you just described. I think we need to all take something from that. And I want to also like it's fine to have a base point to start from, you know, like if you're like, Hey, a scrum master seems to do about these things and a product owner seems to do about, okay, that's fine. Um, we can start with that. You said like 45 and 45 and we flex the 10. Um, but as you become more experienced and as the leaders around you, the team around you becomes more experienced, it's surprising how many scrum master responsibilities not even might go to the product or they go to the team over time. Um, and vice versa, right? Like, and and there's there can be flex and shift around that stuff. And as you mature as a leader, you become more, you know, it's like, use that for what it is. It's sort of like, okay, this is a decent starting point, but then recognize that every, every generic model um, won't work in your specific circumstance and tailor it to your specific circumstance. I know we're, we're, we're coming up on end of time. There was one question I wanted to ask you, and it's a super cynical, annoying question, and I don't want you to feel like you're rushed. Um, so take the time you need to answer this. And um, it, it relates to something you said earlier, and uh, Aaron and I, you got a lot of nods from us, and I went off on a tirade. <laughs> you use the process that works, right? You use, it, use the process that people are willing to use. So let's say I'm just this cynic, and I'm like, hey, I've got a group of people, um, artists, designers, the whole gamut of people required to make content. And frankly, they're not doing a very good job. Um, And, you know, what you're basically telling me is, well, just let them do what they want. Um, Again, I'm taking the cynical, like, worst interpretation of what you said. But someone comes up and they're like, no, that's not going to work. You need to tell them what to do. Like, they're doing it badly now. We have to, if we're going to get this back on schedule, if we're going to blah, 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 we have to change. I'm curious how you would respond, because I know actually sometimes you got that um, uh, while you were working there. And um, 
So yeah, what would you say to somebody who came in and said, no, you're just being weak. You're just, you're supposed to be a leader, not just a servant leader. You're just a servant, cut it out, like take charge, you know? Yeah, the the way that I had approached that was, look, I'm going to give them the goal. I'm going to give them what we're trying to accomplish, what we want to achieve and what's important. How we get there, frankly, like I shouldn't matter to anyone but the people that are using it. And I've, I had this conversation with an individual and it got very heated, like it to the point where like we weren't like yelling at each other, but it was very crystal clear that another person in in our field, like our role at the company did not see things that it was like, you are the harbinger of the process. Like you need to own this. It is not the team's job. Um, and ultimately, I was like, my job isn't to make a process. My job is to make sure the team delivers product and value. And however they do that, who cares? Like, if you're saying, I don't understand it well enough, like, let's figure out what you feel you need to understand and how I can extrapolate that from how we're working. A process should never, our process should always serve the team. It should never be the team bending to fit into a process. Like if, if you're doing that, you're going to lose something at that point. It's the same thing with tools. Like if you use say Jira, well, you know, tell me how Jira makes my team work better. It's like, well, you know, tell me how your team works and I'll tell you where Jira can fit. You want to come at it from the way people want to work first. And then how do you pull that information out of that? But also not losing track of the fact that people can, like you can get better. Like if you give someone a goal and we, we expose like, hey, no one has any idea how we work. Do you guys understand why that's a problem? Like no one feels like they can engage with us. They feel like it's a black box. That's a problem. And the team more often than not will be like, okay, yeah, I get that. Like maybe we can add a little bit here and a little bit there. So I, I would start with ask like starting with the, the what like what do you need to feel good? Like from your perspective, what are you looking for that would make you feel good that you're asking me for? And then let's talk about how I don't impose that on the team and how I can then act as that caveat. That's a good spot for me as a leader because you need mm -hmm. information for probably good reasons, mm -hmm. but I, the team needs to be able to have the freedom to work in the way they feel valuable for good reasons. How can I be the bridge on making sure those reasons work together and aren't just fighting nonstop of like, be more strict with process. No, we need, you can't put creativity in a box. Like my, my job is to take both those voices and go, here's what both of you need. Calm down and, and let's get some work done. Right. That's a great place to end it. Dave, uh, I, I had a feeling this was going to be really fun and really informative, but it blew away my expectations, uh, as you have so often done in the past. I really, I really, really appreciate you joining us and, and chatting with us. This was super fun. And uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I appreciate it. There's one thing I do want to highlight at the end is I, I want to make sure the people I worked with were awesome. Like this was not Klaus created the, the God team uh, at here, like... I, I did a great job. It took me a long time to to realize like, yeah, well, I was doing a great job, but the people I worked with were stellar. And so 
I was there to, to take all these stellar people and get them working together. And it, so it wasn't like, wow, we have a whole bunch of ragtag misfits and Klaus really whipped them into shape. <laughs> um, it, it, it should come off as like, find the awesome in the people you work with and, and get them working together. I don't have to make people great. They're already probably great if they're working at a place like this. Like, how do I get them working together? It absolutely comes off that way to me. So okay. thanks for joining us. Um, thank you, everybody. And we'll see you next time on Building Better Games. Thanks for listening to Building Better Games with Aaron and Ben. If you have comments, questions, or would like to work with Ben and Aaron, shoot an email to info at valarinconsulting.com. That's info at V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Valarin Inc. We'll catch you next time.